You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf shall also not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. I'm Jason Liner, the executive pastor here at Schweitzer. This morning, we begin a new series on the Psalms. Last week, I was traveling. I don't know where you were at last week, but I was traveling. I had a nephew that graduated in Michigan, and so our our family went to Michigan. It's about a 12-hour trip from here to there. It's a long journey. And so in that journey, we do a number of things in our car. I don't know what you do in your car, but we listen to a lot of things, and we have some periods of silence. Uh, Some of the things we listen to, some of the are like musical soundtracks. Some of you know that my kids are really involved in the theater, so, so The Greatest Showman played a number of times. In fact, I even found the repeat on a couple of songs to, to play those things there. And they don't just play in our, in our van, but they play and, and people sing. And, and we don't just sing, but then I used to be a drummer in high school, and so I'm driving, but my hands are not always on the wheel. So there's interesting things that happen in those moments. But then we, we have moments of silence, then then uh, we also pull out stories, books on, uh, still books on stories. And, and one, of the, one of the stories that we listened to when we went was, was some of the C.S. Lewis's stories, The Chronicles of Narnia. And I began thinking about the intersection of, of songs that we were listening to and thinking about this series on, on the book of Psalms and then thinking about what Lewis did in, his, in the first Chronicles of Narnia book in, in The Magician's Nephew when he had Aslan the lion... When he came into the world of Narnia, the way in which Narnia came into being, into its very existence, was that Aslan the lion sang it into existence. And Lewis, in a very story format, is, is telling to us, the reader, in, in words that we can get a hold of, that we can grasp, he's telling us something that's sort of basic to the realm of the, theological understanding about who God is and how God worked the act of creation. Many theologians suggest that the way God created the world was that he sang it into being. And so why is it that you like songs? Why is it that you like music? Why is it that that when you see something beautiful, there's something about a song or a lyric that has to come out from you because nothing else will really describe it? Because when you want to express something that's really magnanimous, you have to go to a song. Well, in the next several weeks, 
we're going to be taking a look at the book of Psalms within the scriptures. And if you have a Bible, an old-fashioned, I guess, printed Bible like this, you'll know that the Psalms you'll find typically um, in the middle. Is that funny, Jim, that I called it old-fashioned? Some of us are still there. Um, um, it's in the middle. The Psalms are in the middle. And the Psalms are written by a lot of different people. We, sometimes we think um, inadvertently that David was the writer of the Psalms. Well, David wrote about 73 Psalms, but then Moses wrote a couple of Psalms, and the sons of Korah wrote some Psalms. And there's a lot of people who are, who are not known to us who wrote some of the Psalms that are present in a, in a book. But it's not just a book. It became a prayer book and a song book. It was the songbook that Jesus turned to when he was in Galilee and he wanted to express himself. And when he went up to Jerusalem, he turned to the psalm, psalms or songs of ascents. And they sang those songs. They were the traveling psalms and songs. When we open those, those texts, we find that we find a lot of poetry there. And maybe you're somebody that loves poetry. And so you love to open those up to those words. Uh, I've never, I'll, I'll make an admission, I've never loved poetry as, a, you know, as an English major might um, or, or somebody else might, but there's poetry there. And C.S. Lewis said something pretty significant about the reality that the Psalms have poetry in terms of what they convey. Lewis said it like this. He said, the Psalms are poems intended to be sung. He said, and wonderfully, they're not doctrinal treatises, nor even sermons, but they must be read with the emotional rather than the logical connections. Then he went on to say that poetry is a little incarnation, giving body to what had been before invisible and inaudible. The poetry helps us get to that place. Lewis, of course, would enjoy poetry because he taught, he taught languages and he taught literature appreciated what was there. One of the things I liked that he said just after this, he said, and he, he wrote that in a book on the Psalms. He said, when I told people I was writing a book on the Psalms, they, they wondered, why in the world would you do that? Most of your other writing has been in apologetics, he said, because there's a point in your life when you don't want to explain the faith or defend the faith. You simply want to revel in the faith. And when Lewis came to the Psalms, he found a faith that was worth reveling in. Some of you have favorite psalms, don't you? If, you? if somebody came up to you and began to quiz you, you would have psalms that you've memorized or you've come across at some point in your life. Because the psalms are poetic, they give that ability to us to be memor memorizable. This last month, I found myself beside a couple of different um, beds where people who'd walked with Jesus for a long time were getting close to taking their last breath. And there were moments when somebody said, you know, Pastor, could you say a prayer? And as KJ just mentioned in, in his prayer before we started, he said, sometimes words escape us. But when we find psalms that are significant and they become embedded in our memory, they find a way to come out at certain moments. And so what do you say when you're standing beside the bed of somebody who's walked with Christ for a really long time? In my own heart, my own spirit went to Psalm 23. 
Where does the good shepherd come? The good shepherd comes in this moment alongside of somebody who's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But I will fear no evil in that place, for thou preparest a table before me. And where will I dwell? But I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Suddenly, something that comes from the, an old text finds vibrant meaning and significance in that kairos moment of time. The Psalms give us that ability. They give us the ability to express a lot of different emotions. Sometimes they're emotions of trust. Sometimes it's emotions of pain or, or agony. Sometimes it's ecstatic joy. One of the things that the Psalms are really pointed in on is that, that we can be honest. Have you ever wondered if you could really be honest with God, honest with yourself? The Psalms enable us to do that. In fact, they encourage it. Derek Kidner, a commentator who, who wrote some commentaries on the Psalms, he said, in fact, when we open the Psalms, there are moments when we're reading through it if we've read certain passages of the New Testament, we can almost be embarrassed by what's written in the, psalmist, in the Psalms because the psalmist will not just ask for justice, but the psalmist from time to time will say, Lord, I am vengeful and I want vengeance. And nothing else will quench. Nothing else will, will quench my heart than to see vengeance done and brought upon my enemies. Kinder said that could be scandalous in some circles. And yet, and yet, they're within the pages of Scripture. Because, friends, sometimes you and I, we find ourselves in that place. Wanting to say prayers like that, and we wonder if we can, and the Psalms say, yes, you can. But in a search for honesty, in a search for God, the Psalms always come back to the reality that faith, faith is something that we are called to walk in. Walter Brueggemann, another uh, writer on, on the Psalms, an Old Testament scholar, gave us this quote. Can you put, he's, uh, he quoted, began by quoting Ellie Weisel, who said, poets exist so that the dead may vote he said they do vote in the Psalms. They vote for faith. But in voting for faith, they vote for candor, for pain, for passion, and finally for joy. Their consistent voting gives us a word that turns out to be the word of life. The Psalms are interested in taking us to a place where we walk in life and we walk in faith. This morning, uh, we're going to turn and hear from Psalm 1. And we, we heard from it already in the King James Version of the, of the Bible, and I'd like to read it to you in the New Living Translation. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They're like trees planted along the river bank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do, but not the wicked. They're like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly, 
For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. This passage in Psalm 1 is in some ways a prelude to everything that the psalmist will write, whether it's Moses or David or the other, um, the other writers. They all have a consistent theme. And the theme that is present and, and pretty evident to us in Psalm 1 is that there's a couple of different paths that we have the ability to walk down and we have to live. We can either walk down the path of trying to find our own way or make our own way. A path that's devoid of God, that's devoid of faith. Or we can walk on a path that is, that is seeking after God, that seeks to reflect faith and to have faith, even when life gives us a lot of questions that we don't understand. There's two paths, essentially, the psalmist will, will present to us. And they, they have different elements in each path. Uh, if, if we could, I'd love to have a, like a divided screen, but, but we don't have a divided screen right this morning. So just imagine in your mind just for a moment, or if you have your, your Bible, you can even just see it through there. But the two roads are really contrasted. The two paths are contrasted. The one path the writer talks about, which is the way of really avoiding God, has some things like scorning and mocking on it. The writer says, those who avoid God, they tend to scorn. They tend to get, well, a sense of bitterness, a sense of mocking. The other thing he says about that path is that there's, the people who are in it are like chaff. They're blown about and uprooted. When we got back from our trip uh, to Michigan, I went out to my truck that had been parked for about well, four or five days, and, and all over my truck was, was pollen. And we all know that pollen at one point is essential, but a number of us are like, enough already with the pollen, aren't we? We're like, I've, I've had enough of this pollen, but it blows around, it blows everywhere, and you're like, our lungs are everything else. It's like we can do without it. Well, chaff... At one point, it's, it's, it's necessary. It's part of, a, part of a plant and part of the thing that gives fruit to things like oats and wheat, things that are necessary for life. But after you harvest the fruit, you no longer have need for the chaff. I don't know if any of you have been around or seen chaff or if you've been in a place where there's a lot of chaff. You, you essentially come out. If you've ever been in one of those places, it's like you're, you're good with like being not being connected to chaff because you can be covered in this stuff and you're like, you don't like it. You want to get rid of it. The writer says, if we walk on the way of avoiding God, we end up becoming like chaff or like pollen, blown around, unrooted. Wherever the winds blow, that's where we go. And then he goes on to say, he says, because of that, because of the fact that we don't have roots, we come down to a sense of ending or a sense of destination. And he says, we have no place, really. There is no place for that which is chaff or unrooted. In fact, you wind up in a place of destruction. At the same time, he draws that picture, and he charts out what that path looks like. He also charts out the path of the way of delighting in God or following after God. And he says that pathway is filled with joy and delight. It's got all kinds of, of joy and laughter and reveling within it. 
he says also, he says, it's a, it's a pathway that abides in the law of God. Just like Jesus would tell his disciples in John 15, he said, if you want to have life, you have to abide in me as I abide in the Father. The psalmist is saying, if we want to have life, if we want to walk the path of life, we have to abide in the law of God. And what he means by the law of God is he means the revelation of God to us, to the world. And then he also uses this picture of a tree where chaff gets blown all around. He describes a tree that's planted by the by the waters. And he says this interesting reality. He says a tree planted by the waters and it's fruitful in all seasons. Now I've never seen a tree that's fruitful in all seasons. But in all seasons, this tree that's planted by the waters is fruitful. And then he says, at the end he says, when we walk in this pathway of delighting in God, we come to this place of God's transforming presence. God watches over us. God walks with us. We find that, that we're not just walking on our own, but we're actually walking with God. Now the writer, it seems to me, is doing a couple of different things. The writer is making a statement, a proclamation. Things that the writer has viewed as they look back at past history. Over the course of history, as they think about eternity... These are things that the writer has come to the place of saying, we know. And yet at the same time, it seems to me that the writer is also in that place in their own mind where they wonder, where am I at? And in fact, I think the writer would bring to us the question, which path are we following? Which path are we walking on? Are we walking a path of delighting in who God is, walking in faith, or are we walking a path that says, I don't know that I need to walk with God? The writer paints that picture, and for him, himself or herself, whoever the writer is, and for us, the writer wants to bring us to a place of challenge and really a place of invitation to say, Beloved, you and I are invited by God to walk with him, to delight in him. And in fact, even in describing that picture, painting that picture, there are, there are three different elements I'd like to suggest to us where the writer tells us how we can go about walking in that pathway. The first, he says, is, is this reality where he talks about taking joy and having delight in verse number one, when he says, those who, who have the joy of God, the delight of God, avoid trouble. And then he has three different ways in which they avoid trouble. On our trip, we, uh, we stopped in to see a young couple that we had uh, met several years ago. And they were telling us about their house that they'd bought and they'd done some arrangements on. And then we were talking about some new furniture and how they had rearranged their, their living room. One of the things this young couple told us was we, we used to have a TV that was over there on the wall, but then we took it out. We said, well, why, why'd you take it out? I said, well, we've, we've got one TV already in our bedroom, but, um, you know, and we kind of hang out in there some on Friday nights. But we found that when we had a TV that was on the wall, central in our wall, when we'd come home from work, we just didn't have anything to do, we'd just find ourselves looking at that p 
piece that was center in our room. And it was central not only to the living room, but also the kitchen. We just stared at it. We didn't talk to one another. We didn't pick up books and read books. It was just one of those things that was there. And they said, honestly, it didn't really make us feel better at the end of the day or at the end of the night. We didn't go to bed saying, man, it's been a great day now. I don't know about you. I mean, maybe there are some elements of things that you can, you can watch together that bring you some delight. I know I've got a couple things that bring me some, at least some insightful delight. But when they were looking at all of it, taking it all in, they said, I don't know that this is the pathway that leads to joy and delight. There's other things that are like that too. Think about the psalmist says, if you want to walk in the path of joy and delight, you're not going to hang out with scoffers and mockers. Any of you ever find scoffing and mocking on social media? I wonder what Rosie O'Donnell would think about that after the week that she's had. What is it to walk in the way of scoffing and mocking? What kind of trouble comes to your house? It's your own sense of destiny. Ryder says if you want to walk in joy, you're going to find ways to avoid some things that don't take you to places you want to go. The writer also brings us back to that reality that if, if you want to walk in faith, you have to abide in the law of God, to abide in the scriptures, to abide in what God has revealed to us. How do you abide in, in Christ's revelation? How do you abide in the scriptures? Do you think you can do it? You can. You can. I can. We all can. God brings us an invitation to abide in him. The writer talks about how he abides in, in the scripture or, or asks the question when. He says, I try to abide in the scriptures all night and all day. Now, how, do you, how are you going to accomplish abiding in the scriptures the entirety of a day, all night and all day? Take some intentionality on our parts, doesn't it? Do you have a place that you go? I have some places I go that, that help me and actually become places where um, abiding in Christ, abiding in God, abiding in his revelation takes some significance for me. Outside of our front door, there's a, there's a rocking chair that Anna bought for me several years ago. And early in the morning, I like to go, at least when it's warm enough, I like to go and sit in that chair with a cup of coffee and scriptures and read and watch and listen to the birds sing and watch the sunrise come up through the trees and slash away the darkness that's below it. And be reminded that Jesus said, I am the light. And the light can never be cast out by darkness. There's another place I like to go. And it's a, a hobby place for me. It's on the seat of a tractor that I have. And 
tractoring for me is a spiritual discipline. It's also recently been a point of a lot of prayer because my tractor's not running right. And, and I don't have, inside of my own being, uh, a ton of knowledge around motors and, and uh, setting valves and, and messing around with carburetors. And so I find myself praying an inordinate amount, I mean, just a tremendous amount of prayer. Like, Lord, help me understand this thing and, and help me do that right. That's a, a hobby place, but also a place of spiritual discipline for me. How about you? Do you have a hobby place? Does the place of your hobby give you space in which you can say, Lord, there's something I can't figure out here yet, and I need your help, your guidance. Do you talk with God in the midst of your hobby? Does God speak with you? I've got a couple other pictures there. What's, what's the next one? I, uh, the road. This is a picture of the road when I come out in the, in the morning and go for a run. How do you meditate on the law of God when you, you go for a walk or go for a run? I find myself doing it. Thinking about what's been read early in the chair. Praying over things that are coming up ahead. When you go for a walk or a run, do you put the earbuds in? Do you fill your stuff with, with music or do you put news on? What do you do? I find it's a great place to talk with God. Another place that I like um, to just sort of sit in and use as a place to converse with God is, is in my truck. Especially after a day of, of work, a day of thinking, day of talking with people and engaging others. It's nice, isn't it, to get into a place like your vehicle and drive a little distance. And in that distance, not to fill it with air, but to sense, Lord, what are you doing in this time and place? How do you want me to be a part of it? And then there's another place for where we can meditate. All these places that I've suggested so far have been pretty much private places my own personal experience. But I think the next picture is a picture of these pews. And when we gather together, is this not a place where we get to meditate and hear what God has said? Where we can find our hearts abiding? These are places. And my own experience that I found that God finds a way to speak and to direct and to guide. Where are the places for you? Where are the places for your family? The psalmist invites us to think about ways that don't help us walk with God, then to think about ways in which we can abide and we can meditate on the law night and day. And then he brings us to that place, that picture of a tree planted by the river. Across the parking lot over here, there's a big oak tree. And the oak tree, behind it, there's a little shed, and, and now there's a, a garden. It's a prayer garden. That oak tree, I don't really know how many years old it is. Some of you in here may be arborists. You could tell us how old, or you could at least estimate how old that tree is. 
Imagine it's over 100, maybe 150 years old. It's a tree that's got roots that go down deep into the soil. Somebody tried to put a fence around it at one time, and those roots are just strong and steady, and those roots disrupted the fence. That tree is producing an incredible amount of shade and beauty. The tree has lasted, lasted through all kinds of, of history, turns of events that somebody thought was significant. And then those events pass along. That tree has probably started growing when this place was a meadow, far from ever being part of the city. And then that tree was there when this place where you're sitting now was an apple orchard. And that tree was still growing when there was just a small little building that was the fellowship center now. And there was a small congregation that began to meet on this place. And it's overseen all kinds of things that God has been about doing and building. The tree, like the tree that the psalmist writes about, is planted next to a place where God is at work. And when God is at work in our own hearts and our own minds, and when God is at work within a community, we may not see it, from one year to the next. But over the course of a long year, of a long season, a long span of time, the writer tells us that when we walk with God, when we walk in faith, we find that God makes us into oaks of righteousness, of goodness. What flows out of us is blessing and joy and delight. I told you that I had the privilege, really, of standing beside a couple of beds in the past month as people were planning to make their pilgrimage from this world into the next. Both of those folks had walked with God a really long time. There were oaks of righteousness. There was peace, serenity, calmness, joy. Joy, even. In what their lives had brought forth and joy into the arms in which they were going to. The psalmist will start talking to us about a pathway. And he'll invite us to walk in the path of faith. And the psalmist will take us all the way through until we get to Psalm 150. And in that place, we stand in the house of God and we rejoice. That's the journey that you and I and all of us are invited to go on.